you would turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, uh, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. It's page 1170, if you're looking in one of the Pew Bibles. Coming to the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians, which we've been looking at over the last couple of months. Uh, and as we've said previously, the main idea of this book is found right in the middle, in chapter 2, verse 6, where Paul says, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So the first part of the book leading up to that focuses on how the Colossians had received Jesus as Lord and who Jesus is and what it means to know him as Lord and Savior. And then the second half of the book has been focused on what it means to walk in him, uh, to live and by faith and trust in him, to live out of our identity in Christ, uh, to be transformed from the inside out. Uh, so we've seen how Paul uh, wants that our identity in Christ to uh, fill our character and affect our relationships within the church. Last week we looked at relationships within our households, and now uh, Paul's sort of expanding out. Today we'll be looking at living for Christ in the world. So let's read these two short paragraphs, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6 in Colossians. Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, uh, we pray that you would open it up to, to us, to our minds, to our hearts, and that you would prepare us and equip us for all that we uh, have in this week to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, a couple of months ago, toward the end of the summer, while it was still warm outside, some friends of ours invited us to join them for the afternoon at their country club. Uh, where they were members. It was a beautiful place. It was nestled back in the woods uh, with swimming pools and tennis courts, volleyball and tetherball, a playground and soccer field, charcoal grills and concession stands, umbrellas and picnic tables. Our kids had a blast swimming and playing all kinds of games. The adults enjoyed uh, leisurely conversation, mostly lounging by the pool. At this country club, there was something for everyone. It was a very comfortable place. Uh, are any of you hearing an echo? I turn, yeah. No, a little, uh, uh, maybe turn, turn off the piano. You got it. All right. I think we'll fix that. Um, so by contrast, when we moved up to this area a little over a year ago, uh, I met a guy who had joined the volunteer fire department in our new town. Uh, now, in order to join the volunteer fire department, you have to sign a commitment to serve for at least two years, and if you don't do that, you need to reimburse the town for all the costs of the training and the uniforms and the medical exams that are required in order to onboard you as a member of the volunteer fire department. And then you have to maintain your status, uh, he told me, as, a, as an active volunteer by responding to a certain minimum number of calls, emergency calls, uh, per month or per year. You see, people don't join the, unlike a country club, people don't join the volunteer fire department because it's a comfortable place with something for everyone. 
People join the volunteer fire department because they see the value of its mission in the community. Now, if you had a choice uh, between joining a local country club and joining a local volunteer fire department, I wonder which you would choose. Most of us would choose the country club, right? In fact, there's, quite, there's more country clubs around than volunteer fire departments around. Cause uh, for no obstacle. But in the passage we're looking at today, the Apostle Paul tells us that the church should function more like a volunteer fire department that's united around a shared mission to uh, the community around it than a country club that is built primarily around maintaining and increasing the comfort of its members. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the church is the church only when it exists for others, not just for itself. Now, the Apostle Paul had lived out that principle for many years in his own life. He had devoted decades of his life to planting new churches, encouraging and strengthening existing churches, often at great personal cost. He was writing this letter from prison. And he says, in uh, chapter 4, verse 3, uh, I, I, I'm in prison on account of declaring the mystery of Christ, on account of this message that I have been preaching and proclaiming throughout the world. But here, as Paul concludes this letter, Paul invites the Colossians to join with him, to join with him in this mission that he has devoted his life to. So, uh, Paul began the book of Colossians by praying and thanking God for the Colossians in chapter 1, and now here in chapter two, uh, chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, he invites the Colossians to join him in prayer with thankfulness. Uh, at the end of chapter 1, Paul spoke about his efforts to proclaim Jesus to the uh, Colossians and other Christians in other places, and now he urges them in verses 5 and 6 to make intentional efforts to share Jesus with the people around them. So he's inviting them to join him in what he's already been doing, what they already know he's doing. So Paul is like an experienced member of the volunteer fire department welcoming and training the new class of recruits. And that's what the message for us is here today. So as we look at Paul's instructions, some of his concluding instructions to the Christians in Colossae, I want us to consider what God has for us in this passage. What are God's instructions to us as a church uh, and, and, the, and to consider the mission that we are called to? Uh, I think it boils down to two things uh, from this passage that this passage focuses on. Our mission involves, number one, speaking to God about people, in other words, prayer, verses 2 through 4, and number 2, speaking to people about God, verses 5 through 6. So I want to look at these two themes, speaking to God about people and speaking to people about God. Uh, so first, speaking to God about people, or we might just say prayer. Uh, verse 2, Paul tells us how to pray, and verses 3 and 4, Paul tells us what to pray for, or who to pray for. So how to pray. Let's look at uh, the words in verse 2. Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul wants us to be steadfast in prayer. In other words, to persist in prayer, to devote ourselves to prayer, to pray with dedication and discipline and endurance. And Jesus said the same thing. He told a parable about a persistent widow, and he said, Like that widow, we ought always to pray and not give up, even when it seems like our prayers aren't being answered. 
Now, if you read the Bible, especially if you read in the Old Testament, you can find many examples where people prayed and cried out to God uh, for many reasons, but their prayers weren't immediately answered. Um, but their prayers were answered later on down the road, sometimes weeks or months later, sometimes years later, sometimes even decades or centuries later. There were some people who were praying that God would send the Messiah for hundreds of years. And that prayer was finally answered long after the lifetime of most of the people who prayed it when Jesus finally came into the world. You know, God has many reasons for not always answering our prayers right away. Here are just a few reasons. Uh, I got these from a devotional on Colossians that I thought was helpful. Uh, a few reasons why God doesn't always answer our prayers immediately. Sometimes we're too entitled. And through steadfast prayer, God wants us to teach us that everything we have is a gift. Or sometimes we're too impatient. And God wants to teach us not instant gratification, but humble dependence on him. Sometimes we're too immature. We're not yet ready to handle the answers to, the, to our prayer. And, but through continuing to pray, through being steadfast in prayer, God prepares us to receive those answers later on. Or sometimes our motives are impure, and God, before giving us something, God wants, us, God wants to purify our hearts. Sometimes there's a spiritual battle going on that we may not even be aware of. Sometimes God has his own reasons that we may never fully understand. But God's command to us here is continue steadfastly in prayer. Don't think it's not worth it just because the answer hasn't come, even for a long time. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And then, uh, Paul says, being watchful. Now again, Paul was echoing the teaching of Jesus himself. Jesus also taught his disciples, uh, watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. That's Mark 14, 38. Or in Luke 21, 34, Jesus says, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day, the day when Jesus will come again, and that day come on you suddenly like a trap. So Jesus told his disciples to be watchful. Now, uh, some Christians have thought that being watchful means watching out for the signs that indicate when Jesus will return and making our best guess as to when that will happen. Uh, everyone who's done that so far has been wrong. Um, because that's not what Jesus said we should do. He didn't say, watch what's going on in the world and then make your guess as to when exactly I will return. He said, you're not going to be able to guess it. I'm not telling you exactly when that's going to happen, but watch your own lives so that you are prepared whenever it happens. Watch yourselves, he says. Like a security guard working the night shift, we're to watch out for spiritual dangers and temptations even as we await the glorious morning, the coming of our King. Prayer helps us remain alive to the will of God and aware of the needs of the world, uh, one person said. So steadfastness, watchfulness, and third, thankfulness uh, in prayer. Uh, you know, I think sometimes it's possible for our prayers to become a sort of meditation on our problems. And, and I think that's why Paul urges us to mix prayer and request with thanksgiving. Uh, you see, giving thanks to God is one of the best ways to resist anxiety, self-pity, restlessness, other traps we can fall into. Giving thanks to God reminds us that God has been faithful in the past, 
Uh, it points us towards God's promises in the future, and in doing that, it lifts us beyond our present circumstances. So that's how God calls us to pray, with steadfastness, with watchfulness, and with thankfulness. Uh, but then in verses 3 and 4, Paul gives us uh, two things that we should pray for. Now, there are many passages in the Bible on prayer. This is not a comprehensive teaching. This doesn't cover all the bases about prayer. But this passage gives us two uh, sort of hinges to hold on to, uh, two things to focus our prayers around. Verse 3, uh, Paul says, Pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word. So pray that God would open doors for his word. Uh, now, that idea comes up in a few other places in the New Testament. Uh, Acts 14, 27 uh, speaks about how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In other words, God opens the door to his kingdom so that people from all nations can enter in. So that's one idea uh, about open doors. Uh, in other places, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, uh, there's the idea of God opens up opportunities for the gospel of Jesus Christ to go out into all the world. So Paul says in that verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 8, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So sometimes open doors come along with challenges and opposition. Uh, and a third way that this uh, uh, sort of metaphor is used of an open door is God opens people's hearts to respond to the gospel. Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So God opens the door to his kingdom so people can come in, opens opportunities so the gospel can go out, opens people's hearts so they can respond. But in all these cases, God is the one who opens the door. So when Paul says, pray that God would open a door, he's saying, pray that God would do what only God can do. There's some things that we human beings are just not powerful enough or not created to do for ourselves or for others. We just can't make these things happen, uh, but God can. Uh, Revelation 3, verse 7 uh, says, Jesus has the key of David. He opens and no one will shut. He shuts and no one opens. So Paul encourages us to pray earnestly that God would do what only he can do, to open people's hearts when they're closed and resistant and hardened, to open doors for his word to go forth in places where there are hindrances and opposition. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for God to do what only God can do. Uh, you see, Paul says our prayer shouldn't just focus on, Lord, help me be more comfortable and more prosperous. Right? They're not just country club type prayers. They're mission focused prayers. Pray that God would open doors for his word. And second, pray that Christian missionaries and preachers would proclaim Jesus with power and clarity. Paul asked for prayer for himself. Verse 4, that I may make it clear. In other words, I may make the message clear, which is how I ought to speak. Now, in this case, Paul isn't praying for God to do what only God can do. Paul's praying, saying, pray for me that God would help me to do what I need to do. Right? We should ask God, help us to do what you have told us to do, what you have called us to do, because we need his help to carry that part out too, right? Um, and if the Apostle Paul, I mean, the Apostle Paul was a pretty amazing guy, right? But if the Apostle Paul was asking an ordinary group of Christians 
pray for me. Pray that God would help me to do what I'm supposed to do well. We should ask each other to pray. We, we shouldn't be above asking for prayer either, right? We all should have something where we can say, yeah, I need prayer that God would help me carry out my responsibilities in my marriage, in my family, in my workplace, in my neighborhood, in my extended family, with the people I'm caring for, whatever it might be. We all need God's help to carry out the responsibilities that he's given to us, just as Paul did. Uh, so we should pray uh, that missionaries and preachers and evangelists would make the message clear and that people would see Jesus in all his glory and be drawn to him across cultural barriers, language barriers, intellectual barriers, and all the distractions that clutter our modern world. Uh, every week in the bulletin, we have a list of uh, some of the missionaries that this church supports, including John and Ruth, and that's just a reminder. Pray for people that are that uh, this church is specifically committed to supporting. Uh, pray for them as they carry out their work here locally and in different parts of the world. Uh, pray that they would be, and, and you may know others as well, pray that they would be encouraged and emboldened. Um, so let me just challenge us. Before we go on to the next point, I think the very practical challenge is, are we praying? Right? This pastor encourages us, motivates us to pray uh, for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done in our church, in our neighborhood, in our region, and in our world. Um, one other way to pray for people in this church is to uh, take one of the church directories and, don't, and not only use that as a way to contact others, to encourage them or to connect with them, uh, but to pray for them. Just go through the list. There are six columns. You can do one column every day of the week, and you can take a rest on Sunday, and you've prayed for everybody uh, whose name is in the directory. Now, I know some, not everybody's in the directory yet, but um, that, we'll, we'll build that over time, right? It's a good place to start, right? You can add, you can pencil in other people who you've met, uh, but their names aren't there. Um, so that's the first part of the mission God calls us to, is to pray. And again, not just to pray for ourselves, but pray for the mission of the church here and throughout the world. But the second part of our mission is in verses 5 through 6, not just speaking to God about people in prayer, but speaking to other people about God. Right? This is the role of an ambassador. You know, if you think of somebody who works for an embassy, right, they're always communicating in two directions. First, they're communicating with their government back home, right, the government that they're loyal to, and they're also communicating with the people in the country that they're in. And that's the picture Paul has of Christians living in the world, that we need to be communicating with the Lord Jesus because we're citizens of his heavenly kingdom, that's who we're ultimately loyal to, and we need to be communicating with the people around us in the country where he's put us, in this world where he's put us. Um, so Paul wants us to see in verses 5 and 6 that the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't only spread through full-time missionaries or pastors, people like Paul. The gospel of Jesus spreads through ordinary people, ordinary Christians in our daily interactions with people outside the church. Look at what Paul says to the Colossian Christians. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, that is, people who are not yet part of the church, making the best use of the time. Now, uh, when Paul talks about our walk, when he uses that idea of walking, he's talking about our behavior, 
our attitude, not just our words, uh, but actually before he talks about our words, our talk in verse 6, he talks about our walk in verse 5. Um, and he says we should walk in wisdom. Now, if you look in the Bible, wisdom is, uh, uh, reflects the character of God, right? And, and living a wise life doesn't just mean being clever or savvy. It means living a life that's in line with God's purposes, uh, that's sort of in line with the way God meant people to treat each other. Um, uh, again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a uh, wise man, said, it is not abstract argument, but personal example that gives the church's message emphasis and power. Amen. That's what verse 5 emphasizes. Um, you know, you might think about the importance of example in this way. Okay, what was Jesus' primary goal in coming to earth? Right? If most of us were to answer that question in one sentence, we would say, to die on the cross for our sins, or defeat death by his resurrection. But let me ask us this question. If that was his primary goal, why didn't he just show up on earth as a 33-year-old man and get that over with and done with and be done and be gone? No, he lived his whole life on earth because his life and example matters too. Right? His life, his example shows us the character of God. He doesn't just sort of parachute in and get it all done quickly. No, he patiently walks with people and shows them the character of God. And through that, people are drawn to him and then see he's the one who was called to be the sacrifice for our sins. He's the one that we can trust. The Bible says Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin so we can approach him with confidence. So Jesus' walk matters and our walk matters too. Someone said we are the only Bible that some people will ever read. So, practical challenge, does your walk reflect the wisdom of God in your interactions with people outside the church? Can people look at your life and see, not perfection, right? None of us should pretend to have achieved that. We all, got, we all have things to learn and grow in. But can people look at your life and see, not a pretense that you have everything all together, but sincerity and growth over time? Learning and growing as God's word sinks into your life, as the Holy Spirit works into your life, as you receive input from other believers over time, right? People can see. They say, wow, you're a little different than you were five years ago. Something's, that's, something's happening in your life. It's a good thing, right? Paul says, walk in wisdom. Uh, and then the next phrase, making the best use of the time, literally redeeming the time. Paul reminds us that the time on earth that we have is short. And we ought to use it well in light of eternity. None of us knows how much time we have left on this earth. None of us knows in advance when will be the last time that we will see a loved one or the last conversation that we might have with them. You know, not long after Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Colossae, uh, perhaps even just a year or two later, the city was devastated by a major earthquake. So it's possible that some of the people who received Paul's letter 
died in that earthquake just a year or two later. No forewarning. I couldn't have known that was going to happen in advance. Paul says, make the best use of the time. None of us knows how long we have. You might have longer than you expect, and you might have shorter than you expect. The question is, if your life on earth were to end tonight, would you regret how you spent your time today? If we're living every day in the presence of God, if we're seeking to abide in him and carry out his will, then one day when we do see Jesus face to face, we won't regret how we spent the time that he gave us on this earth. Paul says, make the best use of the time. Now, verse 5 focuses, as I said, on our walk, but verse 6 focuses on our talk. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, Paul isn't saying that all of us have to stand up in front of large groups of people and give speeches, but he does say here that our talk matters. And again, he's talking about how we talk with people outside the church. Now, Paul's instructions about how we speak to people outside the church are quite similar to his instructions in chapter 3 about how we speak to one another inside the church. So some parallels. Uh, chapter 3, verse 8 and 12 says, There should be no impurity or obscene talk from your mouth, but rather put on kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then here in verse 6 of chapter 4, Paul says, Let your speech always be gracious. Right? So that's a similarity. Always gracious. But then, chapter 3, verse 16, Paul's talking about how we speak to each other within the church. Paul says we should teach and admonish each other. In other words, sometimes we'll have to challenge one another. Um, uh, and in verse 6, chapter 4, Paul says our speech should be seasoned with salt. There's that sort of, uh, 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 and we'll talk more about that metaphor in a little bit. Uh, but I think it's a similar idea uh, that we might ask thought-provoking questions. Or we might say things that people might not immediately agree with, right? To, that will help them, uh, that might help them um, consider the truth about Christ. Now, the one command Paul doesn't repeat um, from chapter 3 is his command in chapter 3, verse 16, where he says we should sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Paul doesn't say you should go to your unbelieving neighbor and start singing songs to them, right? That might seem weird, right? And Paul doesn't want Christians to just be weird. Um, uh, but Paul wants us to have a consistent walk and talk inside and outside the church. Do you notice that? That's why there's a parallel between the commands about how we speak to each other inside the church and how we speak to people outside the church, because there should be a consistency, right? Our life should be, we should live one uh, integrated life that brings glory to God. Um, Paul doesn't want us to be one kind of person at church on Sunday and a different kind of person the rest of the week that people wouldn't recognize, right, from one to the other. So, um, uh, now notice Paul's two, Paul has two assumptions in verse 6, which I think are important for us to recognize as he gives us instructions about our speech. Assumption number one is Christians will regularly be having meaningful conversations with people outside the church. Right? That's the assumption of verse 6. Second assumption is these people will sometimes ask you questions about your faith. That's why he says you should know how you ought to answer each person. Uh, see, Paul doesn't envision the church as just a comfortable country club where 
we only spend time with other Christians and avoid as much as possible everybody else who's out there in the world. That's not Paul's vision of the church, of a healthy church. Uh, Paul envisions Christians actively, intentionally, uh, prayerfully engaging people outside the church in meaningful conversation and being open in the process about what we believe. Right? If you never say anything about what you believe or that you even go to church, then how will people even know to ask you questions? They won't even know you're a Christian. Right? They, so, um, but here, I think verse 6, Paul gives us a picture of how just ordinary conversations can unfold in a way that leads for opportunities for people to know Jesus. Again, first Paul says our talk is to be always gracious. In other words, kind and sincere, not overbearing or harsh. People don't care how much you know until they know that you care. Right? Our goal as Christians is not just to win arguments, but to win people toward Christ. One of the best ways to show that you care is to be a good listener, to be a gracious listener. In other words, to take a genuine interest in people. Notice what people care about. Notice what they already believe. Sometimes you might even point out you know, that's something that the Bible talks about, too. That the Bible says that all people are created in God's image. I mean, that's the idea that's in the background of the idea of human rights. Right? Doesn't make a lot of sense if we just sort of, uh, if in a materialistic worldview. Um, and one thing about speaking graciously, if you post anything on any form of social media, the rule applies there too. <laughs> Let it always be gracious. Lots of problems would be avoided if Christians consistently followed that rule. Uh, but second, our talk is not only to be always gracious, it's also to be seasoned with salt. Now think about what difference salt makes. Uh, salt adds flavor to a meal. It stimulates appetite. It makes you want more. In the ancient world, salt was also an important preservative because it kept the meat from spoiling. So the idea Paul's giving us here is that our talk shouldn't be just sweet and inoffensive, never challenging anyone, never taking any risks. No, Paul says we should look for opportunities to share the truth about Christ. To we should take a risk to invite someone to read the Bible with you. Or invite somebody to the Christmas carol service next week. They might say, no, that's fine. But you never know until you offer the invitation. Uh, that might mean asking a thought-provoking question. Like, who do you think Jesus really was? You know, if somebody's sort of, if you're talking about uh, some spiritual, spiritual things. Um, or what do you think it means to know God? Or, how do you think people can find forgiveness? All kinds of possibilities. Uh, but I think the only way that our talk will be seasoned with salt, like Paul talks about, is if we are savoring Jesus himself. All right, you can't give what you don't have. And so, I think it really all, all of this starts with treasuring and savoring Jesus in our hearts. And then it'll just overflow naturally. I mean, yeah, sometimes it feels awkward. I feel awkward too sometimes. But we work through that awkwardness and not let that stop us from doing what the Lord wants. 
And finally, verse 6 ends with, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You see, if we're walking in wisdom, if we're growing in the wisdom of God, if our words are gracious and salty, that is thought-provoking, eventually someone will probably ask you a question about spiritual things, about God, about Jesus, about church, about forgiveness, about what's wrong with the world and why it's so messed up. And then we'll have an opportunity to answer. 1 Peter 3.15 says we should be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have and to do that with gentleness and respect. You see, that's what Paul's uh, teaching us about, to be a mission-minded church, a people who are united not only to care for one another, although that's certainly important to care for and comfort one another, but also to carry out the mission that God has given us in this world. So let's pray that we would be such a church. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be people of prayer, who pray with steadfastness and watchfulness and thankfulness. We pray for open doors for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that your word would go forth through us here in Vernon, here in Connecticut, in this part of Connecticut. We pray that we would be people whose walk increasingly reflects your wisdom and whose talk is gracious and salty, gentle and provocative. And we pray that by your grace, Lord, that many would come to saving faith in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue now uh, by celebrating the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is something we do once a month here at Talkable Church. Um, and if you would turn to the insert in your bulletin. Um, and uh, John and Sharon, if you would come to serve communion this morning. Come on. You might say, what are we doing here in the Lord's Supper? Well, we're looking back and remembering what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross for our sins, when he paid the price so that we might 